Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming along here to the Sydney Opera House today for what's going to be a fascinating hour of discussion. I want to also welcome the live streaming venues around the country, Blacktown City Libraries, Riverside Theatre Parramatta, the Museum of the Riverina in Wagga Wagga, Fire Station Arts Centre in Dubbo, Kasula Powerhouse Arts Centre, the Brisbane Powerhouse Queensland and Horsham Regional Art Gallery, Victoria. Thank you all for, uh, for tuning in today and to listening again. Thank you all for being here. Our guest today is a Pakistani-born writer, thinker, journalist, uh, a man, of course, who is known to all of you today for being one of the more provocative writers and thinkers in the world today. Tariq Ali has said that the 21st century, he fears, is going to be a very long century. I fear that... <laughs> I fear that he's right. We're 15 years in and already we are witnessing the ripples of the rise of China, the waning of the United States, crisis and chaos across Europe to the point where many are wondering whether Europe, will in, uh, the European Union as an entity, as an idea, as an experiment, will indeed survive. An age of austerity, of global financial crisis, an age of the rise of religion and religious conflicts, the, uh, the, the rise of Islamic State throughout uh, the Middle East. All of that we are grappling with and we are 15 years only into this century. It's a century that, if uh, according to the pessimists, could be a century of terrible bloodshed, in fact, to dwarf even the 20th century. Tariq Ali is going to navigate us through what may lie ahead, the challenges that we now face, and what he sees as the failings of our political systems, our political leaders, and what an eventual solution or outcome may be to try to, to right the challenges and failings that he sees right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Tariq Ali. Thanks, Stan, and I'd like to start uh, by just saying how nice it is uh, to be in this hall again. The festival has grown over the years. I remember I came here when it was first beginning, and it's now being streamed to other parts of the country, which is very welcome. What is the world we live in today? This world if we look at it analytically and in a hard-headed way, the world we live in this century is the result of something that happened in the late 90s, early 90s rather, when what had dominated the 20th century for 70 years, the Russian Revolution and its aftermath, imploded. The Soviet Union imploded, the old Tsarist empire, which had been Sovietized, came to an end. China embarked on a fairly clever a new economic policy with the backing of the Chinese state, and I think it's important to understand that without the intervention of the Chinese state and the Chinese Communist Party, this economy would not have developed as rapidly as it did and reached the, uh, uh, the, the, the apex uh, uh, today where it dominates the world market. The big shift 
in the 21st century, in my opinion, has not been a decline of American power. The United States remains the most powerful country militarily, ideologically. American soft power can be witnessed everywhere, uh, including in this country. And American hard power is still on display and in action. And of course, the American empire suffers setbacks, but this is nothing new. Each and every empire that has existed in the history of humanity has suffered setbacks. So no empire uh, has an easy time of it. But the difference between previous empires and the American empire is that this empire is alone. For the first time in the history of humankind, we have a single dominant empire. This doesn't mean it dominates everything, but it means that on a global scale, it is without a rival. It is without a rival militarily. It is without a rival ideologically. It has, of course, economic rivals increasingly in this part of the world, China, Japan, Singapore, the Korean Peninsula, all provide an economic challenge or economic competition. So while the American empire is still in control, we nonetheless have an undeniable fact that the center of the world market has shifted eastwards. That this center is now effectively uh, China and its uh, surrounds, and from there it dominates the world market. It's in that sense not unlike the British empire in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but mainly the 19th century, that it was British goods and commodities that dominated the world, and now it is Chinese commodities that can be found anywhere and everywhere. The, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was, of course, a gathering, formal and many informal gatherings, to decide how the world would be reconfigurated. And what was decided by the rulers of the world, largely the United States, but also the Europeans to a certain extent, was that there was now no reason for subterfuge. What do I mean by this? I mean that as long as the communist world, whatever you may think of it, existed, it was impossible for the West to go on an, on, on, on an ideological and capitalist offensive that was rampantly in favor of big profits, enrichment, the entry of capital into all the most hallowed domains of social and public provision. That was impossible. But once they saw the decline and the forthcoming end of the Soviet Union, that is the direction in which they began to proceed, first via Reagan and Thatcher, and then after the fall of the Berlin Wall, turbocharged capitalism, taking the world with new rules. <clears throat> and these new rules, as pointed out at the time, were that the state was to be denied the right to intervene or supposedly interfere with the economy, that privatizations were the order of the day, 
And these privatizations would not just extend into the traditional uh, uh, social infrastructures of the Western world, but also into the military, also into the police force, also into the prisons. And the purpose was twofold. One, to reduce the power and thus the responsibility of government, so that if horrible things happen in education or the health service or schools or prison camps, could be blamed on privatized companies, but more importantly, to create a new economic structure based effectively on a radical redistribution of wealth from the poor and the less well-off and the middle classes to the very rich and the reasonably rich. And that is what has been happening. And this is what <coughs> has created a political system which is not permitted too much dissent. It is this system that I call the extreme center. And this center is extreme for the following reasons. And this applies more or less in different gradations all over the advanced capitalist world and even in smaller countries like Nigeria or Pakistan, etc. That you have two sets of politicians nominally belonging to two different political parties, sometimes three who exercise power <clears throat> in such a way that when the people get fed up with the incumbent and remove them from power, the party that replaces them carries on in the same old way till it's removed from power. And so you have a musical chair <clears throat> of politics. <clears throat> and this extreme center what does it do? It makes sure that no challenge to this form of neoliberal economics is permitted. When it is, those challenging it are crushed and removed from power pretty rapidly, till now using constitutional means, but attempts were made to use the army uh, and carry out a coup d'etat in Venezuela when the late Hugo Chavez was still alive, which failed because the masses poured out onto the streets. In Greece, most recently, we have seen a government elected on changing very mildly a mild set of social democratic reforms and an assertion of Greek sovereignty to do what was in the benefit of the Greek people, where malnourishment has increased by 35 to 40 percent since the austerity measures were put into place. A small, modest attempt to change, and the EU ruling elite comes and crushes it, saying, we will crush you if you try this out. And before anything can be tried, the Greek government, scared of even worse disasters, capitulates. I've been very critical of this capitulation. And in fact, a number of economists, American economists, Joseph Stiglitz, Paul Krugman, have also in their own ways been critical of the Greek government for capitulating so rapidly because what that does is remove the chance in Europe temporarily from any other government att attempting this, the same. It was the dominoes effect that they feared.
And so they crushed this example. And of course the result will be, I think in a few weeks time, that Greece will elect a right-wing government again since the last one turned out to be such a disaster. I hope not, but I think that will happen. So all these actions, the way they behave, unify these governments. What else unifies them till recently in Europe is the whole idea of fortress Europe, of keeping migrants limited to the European countries, members of the European Union, and new laws and rules into, were put into place to keep people away. And immigration has thus become a major point of debate all over the world. Donald Trump, no one laughed? <laughs> Thanks said he wants to expel 11 million illegal immigrants. 11 million, just nonsense. You know, various American cities would collapse <laughs> were that to happen. A lot of senators and congressmen would have a hard time finding cleaning people. <clears throat> so it's not going to happen, but the, 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 it's the uh, hysteria uh, which is interesting. In Europe, you've seen what's going on. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this migration they're scared of? Or asylum seekers, two different uh, sides of the same coin. The asylum seekers, we know why it happens. If you go and invade other countries and make wars and destroy their infrastructure, as has happened in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Afghanistan, where there was little of an infrastructure anyway, but the destruction has been huge. People do things that they don't do in normal circumstances, leave their places of birth, the cities where they've grown up, the villages where their families still live, and try for themselves and their children to seek a better life elsewhere. And why not come to those countries which have made these wars and are responsible for what has happened to these countries? <clears throat> and at last, all the European Union's rules on migration lie burnt on the ground because of one single image, because we live in a world of images. All this has been going on for ages, by the way. Other children have died. But suddenly, one particular image captures Europe. And there's massive protests. I mean, the Iceland, Iceland is a tiny country. Its government said, we will take 50 refugees. And immediately, within 24 hours, 10,000 citizens of Iceland said, we will take refugee families in our houses if necessary. <laughs> in Munich yesterday, after the appalling ugly scenes in Hungary where there is a very extreme right-wing government in power, when the refugees finally reached Munich, there were crowds to welcome them, carrying banners, saying welcome. So the mood is changing, 
but also the extreme right is rising. Don't underestimate that. It's good all these people are coming out. But at the same time, within mainstream politics, there is a drift, sharp drift, to the right. And if I can, with your permission, address these same problems in Australia, it's appalling, really. I mean, two academics from universities, different universities in this country, sent me a paper just two days ago on the black sites on the islands, and they have irrefutable evidence, some of it presented to the Senate committee, some leaked by whistleblowers, that refugees in these remote islands in Australia are not only being treated appallingly, that one has come to expect, but that some of them are being tortured, that some are being raped, that some who become ill through torture or natural causes are left till the last minute before they are flown to hospitals in Australia, and then one loses sight of them. What happened? Did they survive? Were they sent back? Did they die? And this goes on in a situation where the extreme center is more or less united on this. And you know, to treat people fleeing appalling war situations that your government is partially responsible for creating by its eagerness to go and fight all of America's wars. And the result, that when people seek asylum, from the Afghan refugees during the Tampa business many years ago to what is happening on these remote islands uh, today, they are treated like enemies. The whistleblower said that many of these privatized companies which used former military personnel, retired soldiers, paratroopers, I don't know what they're called here, but their equivalents, to deal with the prisoners, dealt with them as enemies. He insists that waterboarding took place, that some were tortured through the means devised by the United States in Guantanamo Bay. Now, if this is going on in Australia, what are people doing about it? And you know, it's interesting that sometimes countries which themselves are largely, largely based on migration, shut their eyes and close their hearts to others who also wish to come. And when I read about this particular form of treatment, then one it's difficult not to remember the treatment of the indigenous people who lived here for a long, long time. The only right Britain had to occupy this country was might. There was no moral right. There was no moral justification except this was a large empire and it had found what it thought was an empty land. They all say empty land, no one lives there. The Israelis said this when they first formed the state of Israel. 
A land without a people for a people without land. That was the phrase Golda Meir used in 48. And the same mentality was created by imperialism so that even the poorest white citizens in imperial countries thought they were superior to everyone else by virtue of the fact that they had a different skin color. And this goes really deep. It goes deep in this country, it goes deep in the United States, it goes deep in Germany and in a number of other countries. And we are now preparing here to go to war again in Syria. We're going to go on bombing raids to win an election. There's no other possible reason. <clears throat> now, and the reason is that a ugly, unacceptable jihadi group which rose in the vacuum created by the American war and occupation of Iraq, which Obama himself admitted, we are largely responsible for the creation of ISIS, he said. At least he admitted it. And this group, which is a run-of-the-mill jihadi group, saying things deliberately which it knows shocks the West, but the moral question is this, if one is discussing. Not what Prime Minister Abbott said a few days ago, that even the Nazis, the Third Reich was better than ISIS. Now, quite honestly, I cannot think of any other politician, even Donald Trump saying this in public. <laughs> <clears throat> A country which occupied the whole of Europe, which obliterated six million Jews, which treated Slavs as a untermensch and underpeople, which wiped out millions of Russians, compared to this tin pot group which is taking advantage of the vacuum created and which won't last that long in my opinion, you remember Al-Qaeda? Well, this group has overtaken it. Remember going and carrying out the execution of bin Laden? That would solve everything. What has it solved? Nothing. So, in fact, thinking about it, I don't think that even Prince Philip would agree with Abbott on this one. <laughs> So what then is happening to democracy? It's being hollowed out. Because if you have a country without an opposition, where is that country going to end up? It's going to end up, if nothing happens, with a depoliticized, apathetic population basically letting politicians do what they want to and changing them now again just to keep them on their toes. But they don't mind being changed like that. Because in the five years or so they are in power, they've made a lot of money, they've done deals with corporations, they've rewarded their cronies, and then they, at least they're fair, they say now it's the other side's turn to do the same and then we'll come back again. <laughs> in terms of actually transforming anything, forget the thought, forget the thought. 
So I want to just talk for a bit about democracy. There is a notion that capitalism and democracy are intertwined, but it's complete nonsense that. Democracy, or the origins of democracy, lie in ancient pre-capitalist, pre-feudal societies. The Greek city-states had the first inkling of what a democracy could be like, but even then, two chunks of the population were excluded. These were women, always excluded till the 20th century from voting anywhere. And the other were slaves. So slaves and women were excluded from Greek democracy, the city-states, even though it was better than nothing in what had existed before, and poor farmers were allowed to vote. And when Rome finally took over and became the big power, Mediterranean power in Europe, the Senate was effectively a Senate of rich men. And this Senate you know, governed till Caesar's dictators uh, uh, took over. And then we had a long, long gap. And in this gap, democratic ideas came up and the idea of representation, but actually existing democracy took a lot more time before it came. Meanwhile, capitalism was thriving of capitalism of every variety. Mercantile capitalism, capitalism of the post-industrial revolution period. <clears throat> and it was huge struggles by the underprivileged, by workers, which started off a campaign for democracy again, of course. It could be argued, and some do argue, that in England, the first huge battle for democracy was waged in the English Civil War, where the decision of the king to make every single decision in the country was objected to by a parliament of gentlemen, more or less nominated by each other, and they objected to the taxes the king was raising, and this became a huge issue as to who ruled England, monarch or parliament, even though the parliament was unrepresentative. And a civil war was fought over it. And as you know, or at least I hope some of you do, that the first country in the world to execute its king was England. Ah. The second country which followed suit many years later was France. And here too, the debate was on democracy and removing absolutist monarchy from the face of the earth. And whereas in England the revolution was carried through by Puritans, many of them hardline Protestants, just to remember the role religion sometimes plays. And by the way, this spawned a whole group of networks where people made very radical demands. Colonel Rainsborough, strong progressive in the English Commonwealth, demanding 
that he who has the least property should have the same rights as he who has the most. The levelers demanding that the gentry be deprived of its lands. So it spawned other debates which have carried on through the centuries. The French were next to top their king. And through these struggles, ultimately, in England you had the huge struggles for the reform bills which improved representation, the Chartist rebellions. In France you had different mechanisms, but nonetheless, again, improvements in representation. And it wasn't till the end of the First World War that democracy as we know it was introduced with the universal adult franchise. That was when women got the vote, 50% of humanity. But they didn't get it without fighting. The struggles of the suffragettes have of course been docu documented in, in Britain, in the United States. I think Switzerland gave women the right to vote relatively recently, long after the First World War. And interestingly, as a footnote, the first country in which there was a constitution written and prepared in 1919 by the wife, Queen Soraya, who was the wife of the King of Afghanistan, and they were wanting a more radical constitution, inspired by Kemal Atatürk in Turkey and Lenin in Moscow. And in this constitution, women were given the right to vote. Had that constitution been implemented, Afghan women would have had the right to vote before anyone in Europe or America. But it wasn't implemented because the government was regarded as too radical and the British Empire next door in India came and toppled it. Another triumph for the empire. So democracy has been a process not directly related to capitalism. And another way we can look at it is the, today. <clears throat> the capitalism which has gone from here to there in a very brief space of time is Chinese capitalism without any democracy at all which doesn't seem to bother any of the wonderful civilization, civilized countries who trade with it. China is certainly not worse than ISIS. So the, the, the point I'm making is, the point I'm making is that the struggles for democracy have been political struggles. They have not automatically been tied to capital, except in the 70 years of the 20th century, where this was the one big divide, this and others, that the West wanted to show, the United States and the Europeans wanted to show the Russians and the Eastern Europeans and the communist countries, okay, <clears throat> you have free education, free health, subsidized housing, all these demands. We have them too, not to the same extent as you, but we have them. But unlike you, we have a free press in which critics of all varieties, including people who agree with you, can write regularly in our press and criticize us and on our radio and appear on our television. You don't have that.
And it was a fairly decisive point, actually. And it worked, and it succeeded. But once that system imploded, there was no need to carry on with it anymore. And that is why, if you compare, I mean, many of you still have memories. I know amnesia is encouraged by the state these days. <clears throat> but many of you have memories. And you remember what, I mean, I remember coming here for the first time in the 70s, what the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age were like. They were serious newspapers. The Australian, of course, didn't exist at that time, so <laughs> one can't chart its evolution. Uh, <clears throat> so this is uh, essentially the point I'm making, that the democracy which people took for granted and knew is almost unbeknown to them under threat. And questions which should be raised and asked are not being raised. I got distracted by myself, but I was going to say, let's take this issue of ISIS. Appalling though this group is, what is the most appalling thing about it? If you look at its brochures, they are modeled on NATO's brochures. I'm not kidding. You know, they say, this is how many people we can kill in a day. Of course, we don't have the Air Force, which NATO has, so we can't compete with them. This is what we do. They show photographs of them executing people. H horrible. Awful. No question of any sympathy with it. But ask yourselves this. Is killing 20 people in public gaze with a sword or machine gunning them to death and filming it and putting it online. What is the worst thing about it? The public aspect, putting it online? Because if not, how come that that's worse than a drone attack in Peshawar? <clears throat> Which kills 50, 56 people, of which possibly two, maybe, are terrorists, so-called, or members of terrorist groups, and the others are innocent civilians. How come that in the West this moral question is left undebated and we have absurdities spoken? What is the difference between death, who carries it out, what is the difference between innocent deaths? That when the so-called civilized countries carry them out, it's fine, it may be unfortunate, but when those we disagree with carry them out, it's unacceptable. It is this way of thinking that I find really unacceptable. And it creates double standards, and these double standards actually create the anger and turbulence which leads young people in many parts of the world to go and join these terrorist groups. And to say this is not in any way to justify the existence of these groups but to explain why and how they rise. After all, why didn't they exist 30 years ago? They're linked. 
to what is taking place in a world that is being destroyed. The Arab world created after the First World War is now in a state of destruction. God knows what will emerge from it, but the auguries are not good. And one has to think like that, otherwise this particular history, which we're living through in the 21st century, will carry on repeating itself. And the other thing, which will carry on repeating itself endlessly, is the struggle for a better life, to put it no stronger than that where you have now in large parts of the Western world large-scale youth unemployment, impossible for young people to find cheap housing anywhere, huge property bubbles, and yet everything that caused the 2008 crisis is still going on. Australia missed that crisis because of its links, very close links, trading links with China. That's what saved you. But now China's in crisis too. And you're feeling it more because that is how this system functions. And sooner or later, it will give. And I spoke about the origins of democracy lying in the ancient world and some of the struggles which we still talk about Small struggles, large struggles, wars, occupations. Sometimes you see and hear, rather, the echoes of history in these struggles. And I will just <clears throat> read out a quote to you just to stress that. In Sparta, in the third century before the Christian era, there was an explosion of anger because the poor people in Sparta thought that their rich ruling elite, that the divide, class divide, had become too great. Not totally different from a very different world in which we live in today. But in Sparta there were rebellions because people felt that they would no longer tolerate this divide and the rulers fell. They were succeeded by three radical kings, because that was the only form of government they knew in Sparta, they were succeeded by three radical kings who abolished the dictatorship of magistrates that was crushing the, the, the country and imposing these new laws. Slaves were given their freedom. All citizens were allowed to vote. Land confiscated from the rich was distributed to the poor, something that the European Central Bank wouldn't permit today because there are laws against it, which is what they told the Greeks, not far from Sparta. <laughs> and the early Roman Republic felt threatened by this example because they felt that if the Spartan model spread, who knows where it would end up and they might lose their power. Two, not such a totally different way of thinking from the rulers of the world today. And the, they sent in the legions. That's what they were called, not the marines, but the legions. 
under Titus Quintius Flaminius and said to him, crush Sparta. Don't let this example spread. And Nabis, the king of Sparta, replied to the Roman ambassadors thus, and I quote exactly from Livy, the historian of that period. Livy writes that the king sent this message back. Do not demand that Sparta conform to your own laws and institutions. You select your cavalry and infantry by their property qualifications and desire that a few should excel in wealth and the common people be subject to them. Our lawgivers did not want the state to be in the hands of a few whom you call the Senate, nor that any one class should have supremacy in the state. He believed that by equality and fortune, by equality of fortune and dignity, there would be many who would voluntarily take up arms to defend their country. Nabis and the Spartans lost, but what they were fighting against was the extreme center in Rome. Thank you. Thank you, Tariq. We, uh, we have about 20 minutes for some questions. There are four microphones, two here at the front, marked one and two, three and four at the back. If people would like to make their way there, then we can get through uh, some questions. If you could restrict yourself to, to questions rather than comment, we can hear more from Tariq that way and get through as many as possible. While you're making your way there, I did want to bring something up with you, Tariq, to uh, look to what may be a solution that people themselves can actually bring. You've written in, in your book about Australian politics that the country now specialises in battery farming provincial politicians of provincial caste with impressive regularity. In all these locations, citizens deserve better. But you've also warned about the risk of alienation from politics in the entire democratic process. We have seen in recent times a growing frustration in Australia that's resulted in quick turnover of government, a volatility in the electorate, the election of minority governments at a federal and state level. We've seen this internationally, the, the, the rejection of austerity in Greece and the election of, uh, of Syriza, the, the Arab Spring protests that grew up to overthrow autocratic regimes. Do you have faith in the ability of people themselves to seize the initiative in a lasting way, or ultimately is even their efforts futile against the power of the extreme centre? <clears throat> um, well, uh, 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 lasting is a strong word. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of spoken of centuries of struggle mm. in, in my talks. But I think certainly, if people decide that it's necessary to change the structures of the system, or even how it functions politically or economically, they can do it. No amount of repression and torture can stop that, in my opinion. Uh, because, you know, it, it's different. I mean, they couldn't stop it in a few South American countries. It'd be impossible to stop it if it happened in Europe or Australia, mm. uh, uh, or, th or things like that. So I think a lot will depend on how they do it. And it'll be done in different ways. Look, 
you know, the people said to me, ah, so the Tories won the last election in Britain. I said, yeah, they did, but lots of people look at it like this. We won Scotland, we lost England. Mm. <laughs> because what won in Scotland was a social democratic party calling itself the Scottish National Party, which was well to the left of any of the Westminster extreme center parties, and which produced a debate and discussion in Scotland involving young people that I have not seen in my 40, 50 years of active life. I mean, 16-year-olds, schools, packed with kids arguing with each other, and for those of you who don't know this, the youngest member elected to the British Parliament is a Scottish lassie, mm. Mary Black. Just go to YouTube and put in Mary Black's maiden speech in the House of Commons. It's a speech filled with confidence, very, and dignity. And it shook the country. I'm not kidding you. Lots of people who saw it said, well, why can't we have people like that in England? <laughs> and so now you... <clears throat> <clears throat> and, and, and now you have, now we have um, a fight going on inside the Labour Party, which has surprised everyone, me included, that Jeremy Corbyn, actually a friend of mine for 40 years and participated in virtually every struggle together, decides to stand as a token left candidate. But they've changed the rules, thinking that this will help them defeat the trades unions and bring in more Tories into the party. So they've said anyone who registers as a Labour supporter pays three pounds can vote in the elections. Well, not many Tories did, but literally hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of young people who liked what they saw of Corbyn on television and radio, and said, hey, we agree with this guy. He says that he's going to abolish tuition fees. We don't have to pay for universities. This was a new idea to them because they'd forgotten that that is how their parents were educated after the Second World War. And most of these Labour politicians climbed the ladder and then kicked the ladder away. And Corbyn is putting the ladder up again. <laughs> <clears throat> And, and all the polls are showing him on course to win the leadership of the Labour Party. You know, so if this happens, if this happens, I don't know how long it'll last, mm. but it will have a big impact and on it presents, British politics. it presents a real, a real choice at that point that, exactly. is, that is lacking. We will take some questions now before the first just over here. Thank you. Um, Tarek, one of the things I was very interested in hearing you say, or at least inferring, was that our biggest threat is the Chinese state. And yet, having lived there recently in the last couple of years for a year, I was amazed at the rise of the middle class, the rise in the standard of living and also in terms of the rise in income uh, for everyone within that middle class group. So can you elaborate why you feel it's such, uh, it poses such a severe threat to us? Well, very good question. The answer is I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Why should that pose a threat? The fact that a country uh, locked into poverty for ages finally made a revolution which didn't solve all its problems. Uh, 
but at least it created, that's one interesting comparison between China and India, that the Chinese revolution enabled lots of kids from poor families in a much, much wider range to become scientists, mathematicians, etc., teachers, etc., etc. And that tiny base, in many ways, is what helped trigger the turn to capitalism and the new economic policy which the Chinese have put. Why should that threaten anyone? I mean, you know, they're not going to invade Australia, for God's sake. You, you, you have said, Tarek, that you don't believe that, the, that China actually represents... A threat. A threat even to, to the United States. No. In fact, it won't even usurp exactly. US power, in your view. Exactly. Uh, China is not interested in building itself up like the Soviet Union did. Uh, as a big military power. That's a decision their leadership took very early on because they saw how Russia and the former Soviet Union imploded. By constantly engaging in an arms race with the United States, till it couldn't afford it any longer. That played a big part. I remember the Economist headline when uh, the Russians decided to compete with the Americans on the arms race, ah, the joys of rearmament, meaning now we've got them. And they had. And the Chinese are not going to go down that route. Effectively, they'll be a sort of crude but defensive power. They'll defend their own interests in their region. They're not going to take on the Americans. They couldn't anyway. The United States military budget <coughs> is eight times that of the next six countries put together, which include Russia, mm. China, whatever else you want to put in. Uh, you know, American technology has expanded vastly. The big success story of the United States has been the internet, which has transformed the way everything functions. So China can't compete with that, and nor does it want to. So the fear is deliberately created to justify Australia being involved in these absurd uh, uh, military bases and building up its armed strength and saying it hasn't got money to do A, B, C, D, E, but it has a lot of money to build up its military structure. It's foolish, in my opinion. I think. I think it's probably, it's probably also worth remembering the last time China fought a war was 30 years ago against Vietnam, and it lost. Yeah. So it's not exactly battle-hardened. Um, question number three, up the no, microphone number three. Yeah. Um, hi. Thank you for being here. Um, Where are you? Over here. There you go. Okay. Up there in the, uh, the right hand. Okay. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask, with um, the recent developments that happened in Guatemala, just a couple of days ago where the people were effectively able to um, demonstrate the discontent with the level of corruption that had taken place there. They're able to basically make the president step down and he's now in jail. I just was wondering what your thoughts were on that. In fact, you, you do write a lot about Latin America in the book as being one of the, the real beacons of, of hope for change. <clears throat> well, I was very pleased, naturally, that this could happen. And, you know, the, the thing is that people can learn from these lessons. It's very interesting, but the changes in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, the not changes on the Cuban model are nonetheless important changes uh, in that they've educated people both in democracy. I mean, the Venezuelan constitution, even though it's attacked nonstop, is the most democratic in the world where the population has the right. If you get a particular number of signatures, you have the right to challenge 
challenge an existing president and trigger an election. And they did. The opposition did and lost. But no one else has that in its constitution. So that has had a huge impact on the smaller countries on that continent. And the Guatemalan thing is part and parcel of this uh, radical democracy which we see on that continent. And it's excellent that they've got rid of this uh, uh, corrupt politician. I wish the Mexicans would follow them because there the corruption is linked to the narco gangs. You know, most of the politicians are also uh, hand in glove with the drug barons and drug lords in that country. And, you know, not to say that uh, uh, Europe and North America and Australia are immune to that particular problem of corruption. You know, there are lots of stories. And, of course, on different levels. But the fact that the population felt angry enough to do it, that is the big difference with what happens in other parts of the world, that people don't believe in themselves. And in Guatemala, they believed in themselves and their ability to, to do it, and the repressive forces couldn't do anything. So it's very positive. Yes, the convergence this week of the uh, ongoing Euro great, uh, European um, refugee crisis with Jeremy Corbyn being in the ascendancy currently, do you think that he's somehow captured a more global zeitgeist? And do you think that perhaps he could capture the imagination of other Corbyns in Mr Harper's Canada, for example, and here in Mr Abbott's uh, Australia? Well, Harper's Canada <clears throat> uh, is... Uh a really depressing country. Uh, <clears throat> um, and even the NDP, which is their equivalent of a social democratic party, has been caught up in all this and uh, caving in too much. It depends on you know, whether people can transform the NDP or not. I, I rather doubt it myself, though in some areas it's better than, better than others. But let's hope... Uh, it has uh, impact. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn in, in the uh, uh, British press has been called uh, the Pied Piper of Islington. That's where he lives. And the question is, do we have a Wizard of Oz? <laughs> <clears throat> I don't see such a politician in any party. That's the tragedy. You know, the Greens mean well. But in terms of producing a politician who can speak to the country as a whole, this is one of the problems of the extreme center, that the, it's wiped out that layer of politicians who, whether you agree or disagree with them, had something to say. These are sort of confections. <clears throat> uh, microphone number four. Uh, hey, um, first of all, like, thanks for being here. Um, I was wondering about um, your comments on Jeremy Corbyn and like, it really struck that in Australia, like, we don't really have much of an opposition, like, both sides are pretty similar. Um, in terms of global power, um, what do you think the prospects are for um, candidates like um, Bernie Sanders possibly exerting some influence over the American political system? Well, I think uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign obviously has been very striking and can be compared to the Corbyn phenomenon, except there's the way the Democratic Party functions, <clears throat> unless I've read the leaves totally wrong. Uh, I don't think that Bernie will be the US presidential candidate, 
nominee for the Democrats, though a number of opinion polls are showing that if, he's, if the Republican candidate was Trump, Bernie would win, but that's not saying much, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I, I fear that Hillary will be the uh, Democratic Party candidate. Uh, and I say fear deliberately because she's deeply reactionary on a whole number of issues. And we've just been through one identity politics president in the United States whose record is problematic, to put it politely. Uh, and lots of people got worked up. It'll be the first time we have a black man in the White House, etc., etc. And I was critical. I understood that, but I was critical of that view because when you are elected president of the world's only imperial state, uh, your color or your gender or whatever doesn't really matter. You have to run the country and you have to run the empire. <clears throat> and that is to be borne in mind often over the last 20, 25 years, identity politics have become a substitute for everything. And I don't think that, it's fine if you're an individual, and for individuals and for movements fighting for rights, marriage equality, so I'm all for that. But ultimately, it doesn't answer all the key political questions. And people have to understand and, and realize that, and in Asia, We've had a number of women leaders, uh, and not just in Asia. Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel, very hardline. Mrs. Gandhi in India imposed an emergency, uh, fought wars. The two, Bangladesh has just had two women as its leaders for the last 30 years. Uh, Pakistan had uh, Benazir Bhutto. So if one's just judging countries and continents on the basis of identity, then we're way ahead. But if you look at what they actually did, then of course the result is completely different. So I would just warn against that way of determining everything through identity. It doesn't work, it never has, it never will. As you, as you point out, as Tarek points out in the book as well, Margaret Thatcher, of course, was a woman and, um, yeah. and helped author what he, what he calls the extreme center. Time has beaten us, sadly. Um, there is another session which is due to start in here fairly soon. Tarek is going to be signing some books. You will have an opportunity to be able to chat to him some more and, uh, and uh, be able to spend some more time with him. Thank you all for coming along. Please thank Tarek Allen. <laughs>